Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. TIAA is on a mission. Why? Because 54% of Black Americans don't have enough savings to retire. So in collaboration with big-name artists like Wyclef Jean, TIAA released Paper Right, new music inspiring a new financial future. With 100% of streaming sales going to a nonprofit that teaches students how to invest. Stream Paper Right now and help close the gap. Global debt has now topped 300 trillion US dollars, or three times global economic output. This is a number that is going to have very real consequences for billions of people around the world. But as scary as that number sounds, there is still reason to be optimistic, and there are still reasons why most economists handling this issue are not too worried just yet. To help us understand this issue, in the course of our research, we were lucky enough to speak to Dr. Jason Furman, an economics professor at Harvard University and a former economic policy director for the Obama administration. His understanding of an issue as large as global debt is truly valuable, not only because of his impressive academic background, but also because he is one of only a handful of people in the world that has ever had their hands on the proverbial controls of economic policy at this scale. Thanks for joining us, guys. We're here today with Jason Furman from Harvard University, um, and we're going to be talking about global debt, an issue that has a lot of people very worried, certainly has a lot of headlines that sound quite frightening, but I think this should add a good level of context from someone that works with it in quite a detailed way, certainly from a theoretical and academic side, but even from a practical side, as one of the few people in the world that have had their fingers on the proverbial button pulling the controls of, of these, <laughs> these incredible numbers that we're going to be talking about today. So thank you, Jason, for, for coming with us and sharing your insights. Uh, thanks for having me. Certainly. Now, I want to get right into it. And just um, from your perspective as someone who uh, has been in the thick of it, can you talk about your experience with it and your experience as an advisor and as also an academic and add context to the fact that do you think uh, global debt is something that's a problem, uh, or do you think it's something that people take out of context and is is overblown? So the answer is both, um, and it's both in part because it just depends on where you are and what your circumstances are. Political systems tend to be also of two minds on the issue of debt. If you ask people, "Do you like debt?" they say no. They hate it. They want balanced budgets. They want less debt. They want austerity. But then if you ask them, do you want this spending program? They like it. Do you want this tax cut? They like it too. Um, And so they'll take a set of steps um, to increase the debt. You look at countries for most of the advanced economies, the richer countries in the world, I think debt largely is not a problem. Yes, it increased after the pandemic. But interest rates are much lower than they used to be, and so the cost of servicing that debt is not particularly high. Where I get nervous is a lot of the poorer countries in the world 
that were having problems paying their debt back even before the pandemic and are having even more problems with that now. And I want to touch on, I know it's, it might be outside of your direct wheelhouse. There's certainly national debt, and that's the one that probably gets a lot of the attention. But also on top of that, in the world today, there's record levels of, of household and company debt. Do you see that as something that's, that's also under control within reason, or is that um, something that you're a little bit more worried about? Households and businesses, um, first of all, the same general point applies that debt is much more affordable if interest rates are lower than if interest rates are higher. Interest rates now are much higher than they were two years ago. And that is making you know, debt payments hard. It's making it especially hard in countries like Australia and the United Kingdom, where uh, mortgage rates reset more often. But you know, still compared to where interest rates were 20, 30 years ago, um, they're still on the low side and, and probably at some point they'll come back down a bit again. So low interest rates have helped make debt more affordable. The other thing you have to look at with households and businesses is um, what their assets are. And in gross terms, global wealth has never been higher. And in gross terms, global debt has never been higher. And how the net of those works out depends a lot on you know the household, the business, the context, and the country. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, it's something that gets ignored quite a lot is you know, what this debt's been used for. And a lot of it is primarily to, to buy assets that, that do have some real value. And certainly, um, we made a big point in the video that we put together that global assets and sort of global net worth, if you will, um, is higher than ever. Now, I'll get back to that. But before we take that very broad approach, uh, I do want to quickly address the developing countries, the countries that are going to be hit hardest by this, because as you alluded to, there's already rumblings and problems with a few countries before debt started creeping up. Now, a lot of that was probably due to the pandemic. I think that's fair to say it was a, a significant shock for countries in such a vulnerable position. But in terms of a policy, it almost seems like if you want to go through that transition from an agrarian economy to, a, to an industrial economy, and then hopefully on to becoming an advanced economy, it's just par for the course that you are going to have to saddle yourself up with a, a large amount of foreign debt to fund infrastructure and build out industries that make that possible. In your experience, is it a risk that's worth taking or are there better alternatives or is there just other fundamental issues with these countries that have caused that or is it they were just the unlucky ones that happened to be in that that transition period right as right as this big global calamity came about i think it all depends on magnitudes so one way to think about it is you know how much external debt service you have if you're paying debt service to people in your own country you're paying it in your own currency you know, it's not that hard. There's always an escape hatch there. But if you're paying debt service in dollars or euro or something like that, and you're paying it to foreigners, that's where it's difficult. So, you know, one way to gauge what those risks are is look at what your external debt service is relative to how much money you make from selling goods and services abroad. And for low and middle income countries, you know, that was a number sort of like 10% of the value of exports was being paid out in interest a decade ago. 
I think that was manageable and affordable by and large. Now it's a number more like 18%. And that's partly that interest rates have gone up, partly that debt has gone up. And at that magnitude, I'm starting to become nervous. And you see, you know, there's different ways to estimate, you know, do debt sustainability analysis, figure out whether a country is in distress or not. And you're seeing more countries are in that position where they have a certain amount of distress in terms of their debt. It's easy to uh, look at these countries and say that, you know, maybe they've made a, a mistake, bad policy, you know, potentially even sort of corruption and mismanagement by leaders, certainly. Uh, and perhaps rightfully, they do get a lot of the blame when things go bad. And it is easy to say that, uh, look, it's, it's better to, uh, to borrow money from your own population because you can do it in your own currency and, and that's lovely. But for a country, you know, that a lot of the countries that are having problems, Lebanon, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, obviously their populations are quite poor and the wealth per citizen probably doesn't allow for uh, effective borrowing from them because they simply don't have enough money. Is there any more sustainable way to, to go about financing that expansion uh, without saddling yourself up with, with unsustainable amounts of debt? Um, yeah. So first of all, absolutely. You know, If you can borrow from your own citizens, that's great. But I'm not judging a country that can't do that. A lot of countries, as you just said, are, are too poor to do that. I do think the people, the countries, um, the businesses that lend to these countries Bear responsibility too. You know, debt is never guaranteed uh, repayment. And you know, when you're when you're making a loan to Sri Lanka, you're getting a higher interest rate than you'd get if you made a loan to the United States. And you're getting that higher interest rate because you're taking a risk. And so, um, you know, I, th I think the countries involved need to figure out how not to overborrow and not to overborrow in a wasteful manner. But when they get into trouble, you know, the, the lenders definitely have, um, you know, have a big role to play as well. Now, I'm going to go off, uh, off script a little bit here because there's one, you know, uh, that, that certainly made headlines for a lot of quite aggressive foreign lending, uh, which is China through their Belt and Road Initiative, where they've, they've approached, you know, a lot of countries that are now in, in a position of distress uh, and almost sold them on the idea of, you know, we'll provide you infrastructure, you can become a, a client of ours. And, and now that it hasn't worked out, unfortunately, it's the, the borrowers that are sort of bearing the burden of those bad decisions. Um, do you think that was something that could ever have, have worked out? Or do you think that was just a, a fundamentally flawed idea to, to begin with? And, you know, development just needs to be a more organic process. Look, there's a lot of demand for capital around the developing world. And so Belt and Road, China didn't tell countries you have to borrow or else. These countries were desperate to borrow. I think the World Bank is underfunded by the United States and other countries. I think a lot of the advanced economies do less in terms of international development work, um, whether that is concessional aid or lending. And so China stepped into that vacuum, not out of charity and the goodness of its heart, but out of you know, partly um, a mixed set of motives, some of which were commercial to make money on those loans, some of which were a national security objective. And China didn't quite reconcile how much it was trying to do in each of those two dimensions. But, you know, these countries, and they weren't making a mistake 
been thinking they needed money. They did. They have enormous needs in terms of infrastructure, education, public health, all sorts of things. And, you know, some bad luck happened um, in terms of, you know, global commodity prices, which can be a negative for some countries, a positive for others. It depends on your circumstances. Some bad luck happened and the investment's not paying off. And, and now we are where we are. Do you see, uh, you know, had things gone differently, you know, maybe uh, minus one global pandemic, which is obviously a huge shock, uh, trade tensions between uh, the US and China being probably another one, of course, on top of that, the conflict in Ukraine. If those sorts of shocks were, let's say, smaller or, or just didn't happen at all, do you see something like the Belt and Road Initiative having sort of kind of worked out, I suppose, for, for countries and, and been a really positive force overall? You know, it's a little bit too soon um, to judge because a lot of these are projects that are meant to pay off over over decades. But broadly, my guess is on balance, um, absent everything you just said, it would have done more good than harm. And even with everything you just said, for a lot of countries, my guess is it will do more good than harm. But, you know, it's a very granular judgment to make that is certainly going to take time. Certainly. We have an on, uh, like a, a running joke that I, that I say on the channel, which is um, nobody can predict the future, least of all economists. And uh, you know, for better or worse, people keep asking them to do that. And unfortunately, some of the bad ones you know, like to give predictions. So I guess you're one of the good ones. Sorry about trying to force you into to giving an answer there. Um, but it is interesting to get that perspective. Um, now, another thing, and it, it's probably a dumb question, but it has to be sort of asked. You talked about the underfunding of the World Bank and their responsibility is to, to look for opportunities to, to build out infrastructure in countries so that they can become a you know, productive member of the world economy. Do you think there's maybe a perverse incentive for countries like the USA or certainly you know, a country like China where they sort of go, well, we could fund this big organization and it could you know, give out loans to, to these countries and they could become competitive players in the global economy. But is that going to be good for us? Is that then going to turn around and they're going to start competing with our, uh, with our domestic industries? Do you think there's that sort of consideration or do you think I'm looking too far into it there? I think there's a little bit of that, but not a lot. I mean, I remember once when I was in the White House, there was an article in the Financial Times about refugees in Sri Lanka who had set up a call center and were replacing American workers. Um, and the political people in the White House completely flipped out, and we looked into this aid program, et cetera. And turns out the people who had done this program were dramatically overstating uh, what they themselves had um, accomplished. They hadn't actually created that many jobs and replaced any American jobs, but you know, it got the political antenna up of the political people, you know, around us. What was obviously a, you know, well-intentioned program that probably wasn't as good as as it thought it was. There's a little bit of that, um, but not a lot. I think it's more just the sort of selfishness of why would we give our money to other people and those other people would waste money. And certainly within the United States, there's also a distinction between what the administration, the president generally wants, which usually is to do more through international organizations. They tend to think it's a relatively cheap way to advance our soft power, our security interests around the world, whether we do it bilaterally or multilaterally. Multilaterally, in some ways, the money gets leveraged up and multiplied. 
Um, you even have like the Defense Department likes it when the United States is giving more to these things. So the president tends to like it. Um, the Congress tends not to like it. And, you know, I'm a little bit biased on this, but I think the Congress tends to be a little bit short-sighted and penny-wise and pound-foolish in their approach to these issues. That's an interesting insight because, you know, it, it, it makes sense that, you know, it's a hard sell to the general public. Hey, we're going to take, take your tax money. We're going to give it to this, uh, you know, international organization uh, that we don't have direct control over. And they're going to then loan that money out to all of these, these foreign countries around the world that, you know, sometimes and through certain outlets, you, you only ever hear bad news stories about. Um, and we're going to try and build up their local industries. It is, you know, even even if the, uh, the, the you know the real hard economics does work out, I can see why it would be a difficult sell. So that's that's an interesting an interesting insight. Um, but I want to move on from that and on to um, global wealth, which is something that doesn't get talked about nearly as much as as global debt. I don't know if that's just because it's it's harder to quantify, or if it's just not as scary, doesn't make for as good a headlines. And it is difficult to find information on. The one that we used for our report was uh, a study by McKinsey in collaboration with the World Bank, which estimated that global assets were now worth uh, a quadrillion dollars, which was the first time that I ever was able to use that number on the channel. So I was very excited to be able to say it out loud. And then in comparison to global debt, which you know collectively, including households and businesses, is $300 billion or around about that. It doesn't seem very scary anymore. So the question is, why don't we ever hear about that sort of comparison as much? It's always debt to GDP. It's never debt to, to assets, which would be a, a more normal thing to consider if on, uh, let's say, a personal level. Um, I think we should hear about that more. Um, I brought it up earlier in this discussion. I'm glad you brought it up and you were ready for it. And I actually had never seen a number for global wealth before. For the United States, I think it's about $150 um, trillion, which is about six times the size of our income. Um, Americans make about $25 trillion every year. That's what's called GDP. That's very well measured and updated every quarter, but tend to have about six times that um, in assets. The global economy is about $100 trillion. So if you would ask me off the top of my head, I would have guessed the world had 600 trillion of wealth, but no reason to doubt someone who did it more carefully and came up with the number one quadrillion. What's, uh, what's a couple hundred trillion dollars between friends? <laughs> Certainly, uh, yeah, a rounding error. Um, yeah, so I think that wealth is, is really important. And, and that's why I never like it when I see aggregate debt numbers. You know, the total debt of the world, the total debt of a country is blank because then it's screaming out that you need the asset number. Now, for public debt, for a country's debt, you know, very few countries want to sell their assets to pay off their debt. So I actually think in, for the case of sovereign debt, assets aren't that relevant. Now, what's relevant is the stream of income. The United States produces $25 trillion a year of income. The world produces $100 trillion a year of income. Um, if you can tax 20% of that, you can tax you know, $20 trillion globally every year. So I think the stream of income is relevant for sovereign debt, but for individuals, for businesses, absolutely, you need both assets and debt, and, and the assets are, are just enormous. And I could be wrong here, but governments tend to be, in terms of their debt, quite, quite asset light. I know, like the USA, obviously, it has government buildings and, and parks and 
uh, perhaps uh, you'll say like military complexes and things of that nature, but certainly nothing sort of approaching anything that they could sell off to pay down their debt. That's right, right? For the most part. I mean, they're, you know, China, some of the loans it makes are against collateral ports, natural resources and the like. There have been a few cases where maybe they have, um, you know, debts haven't been repaid and they've collected on that collateral, but not a lot of cases. And China, I think, would have much rather had its debts repaid than collected on the collateral. But yes, most countries are are not going to sell things off. I mean, Detroit, a city in the United States, once had a municipal bankruptcy and they were exploring selling art out of the museums. But that's, you know, rare in extremists and, and is small compared to the amount of debt at stake. Yeah, and, and not really on the scale of a national economy either, as big as Detroit the city may be. And it's, um, it's interesting because China is one of the few countries that kind of writes loans themselves, you know, either directly you know, from the government or through their banks where the US is, is only going to be doing it through private institutions. So yeah, that is an interesting insight. Now, on the topic of global assets, I'll, I'll give you um, some sort of information as to how they broke it down. Obviously, a big part of that total global assets is the flip side of that, that 300 trillion in loans. You know, if I write a loan to, to you, you might have a, a $10,000 debt and you can go buy yourself a nice car, but then I have a, a $10,000 asset in the sense that you owe me $10,000 plus perhaps a little bit of interest. So that was, you know, surprise, surprise, roughly $300 trillion worth of it. And then another big one was real estate. Real estate, according to the report, was $350 trillion. About $250 trillion of that was just the land and $100 trillion was the, the buildings on top of that land. And it's one that, that I, I thought was, was, I'm interested in your perspective on this because, you know, real estate is uh, something that doesn't really produce anything. And while it sounds great that we have you know, record levels of assets, is it a concern that those assets are becoming, you know, less productive? You know, they've, they've ballooned from, I'd have to look at the numbers again, but it's sort of as a percent of GDP, as a multiple of GDP, it's gone from something like two or three times to now where it's, you know, 10 times GDP. And that sounds great. It's like, hey, the world's becoming wealthier, but it means that those assets are becoming less productive. And certainly when we look at things like real estate, a house, it kind of just sits there and, and then becoming very expensive causes other issues. Do you have sort of, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, this has been a big question in macroeconomics over the last decade, which is there are two things happening simultaneously. And it turns out they're very much flip sides of the same thing. One is, you know, these, these global asset measures, they're difficult, um, but you can measure the size of stock market. And you look at the valuation of stocks compared to the annual earnings that they produce, and it's really, really quite high. Not as high as it was two years ago, but really quite high. And, you know, that's made some people worry um, that there's a bubble, that stock markets are really, really overvalued. But at the same time, you know, what's the alternative to stocks? The alternative to stocks is to put your money in the bank or bonds or something like that. And interest rates are much, much lower um, than they were a couple decades ago. And those two are flip sides of um, the same thing. The value of an asset is the present discounted value of the stream of returns it will produce. So if you own a company or a bit of land and it's going to give you $100 a year for the next 10 years. Well, how much is that worth? Um, well, it depends on how 
what else you could have done that could have gotten you $100 a year. And it used to be you didn't need that much money in the bank to produce that. Now you need maybe two, three times as much money in the bank to produce $100 a year because of the lower interest rates. And so I think that the global asset values are probably roughly correct, not a bubble. I'm not worried about a big crash, but I think they're correct precisely because they're factoring in on that the rate of return going forward is lower. Now, why is the rate of return lower? There's a lot of different explanations out there. Some of them are that global productivity growth is lower than it used to be, and you've seen a pronounced downward trend there, just you know what we can produce for a given amount of capital and labor. Some of it is things like demography outside of sub-Saharan Africa, almost everywhere else. Um, demography is quite unfavorable to more growth in um, the future. Some of it are just more parts of the economy are saving more and fewer parts of the economy are, are borrowing money for big, heavy industrialization um, and the like. A shift to the service sector in the economy has lower returns than manufacturing. So there's a whole long list of reasons. But yes, I tend to think that the rate of return is lower and that's why asset values are higher. It costs you more money to buy a stream of income than it used to. You've touched on the two sides, which is quite interesting, which is, you know, there are more people, you know, certainly with a lot of money to, to invest, which means that, you know, the demand for those investments is, is up and their, their proportional value is as well. And those investments as well, you know, is the world just not creating or leveraging new technologies at the same rate it was 50 years ago? Do you think that's a problem? Like, which side of that do you think is, is a bigger issue? I mean, which side of what exactly? So, you know, if you're, if you're looking at uh, the returns on, let's say, a company that has um, some shares and the, the stocks are at $100 a share, you know, there's, there's sort of two general forces that are going to push that up. You know, more people with more money in their pocket looking to invest, it's going to sort of naturally increase the demand for, for that stock. Or if the company itself, and, and, you know, sort of as a portion of that return is going to be lower if, if the company can only make $5 a year in profits. Or if the company itself just goes, well, actually, you know, our technology is just not as good as we thought it was, where it can only make $2.50 a year, you know, either way, the productivity on that investment is, is going to be lower. Do you think it's more that there's just more people putting money into it and hoping for the next big thing, or we're just generally sort of running out of new, new innovations? I don't know the ratios of those two. When I teach my class, I show them the market for savings and investment, and the price of it is the interest rate or the rate of return. Um, and I show them the supply curve shifts out because partly because inequality has gone up. You have more rich people saving, partly because countries like China have entered the global economy and they have high rates of savings. So the supply curve shifts out. Um, and then I have the demand curve shifts in, which is for any given amount of investment, there's fewer projects that have a higher rate of return. And the equilibrium keeps the quantity about the same, but the price falls on um, the price being um, the rate of return. So in my class, I draw it exactly 50-50 between the two. Um, when I look at the research on this, I think it's pretty ambiguous. People are sort of throwing a lot of different explanations at it, but all of the form, less demand for investment, more supply of savings, both of which have the same effect in terms of depressing rate of return. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm really glad that you um, brought up uh, inequality, which is which is obviously a big factor in this whole discussion, especially when we're talking about global asset prices, because of course they're not shared, you know, equally or perhaps even equitably amongst everyone in the world. 
there is a large concentration with very wealthy people that do invest, you know, a lot. And this is maybe perhaps a bit left of field, but something that I wanted to clear up and, and something that irked me. So I'm, I'm really interested to get your opinion. There's the general uh, understanding that someone that's quite wealthy is bad for the economy because they perhaps hoard their wealth and, and um, you know, sit on top of it like, I don't know, Smaug from Lord of the Rings. Um, the reality is, of course, they don't do that. But then the assumption is that the next best thing that they can do is to go out and spend that on consumption, go and buy things like yachts and fancy cars and, and lots of dinners and, and get out there and consume because that puts money back into the economy, creates opportunities for, for jobs, gives opportunities to businesses to, to provide those services and those big luxury toys. And the alternative, and, and that's typically, you know, if you ask the average person, would you rather see someone you know, go out and spend their money? They go, oh, yeah, sure, of course, because it creates those opportunities. But the alternative is, is to reinvest it. Now, if they reinvest it, obviously, they're going to want a return. And that, if they're the only ones that, that have the capital to make those investments, it's probably going to hurt inequality more. But the, the question I had, and this is genuinely a question, I, I, I have no idea what the answer is, is wouldn't that be better for the economy? Because if someone buys, let's say, a private jet, that's still resources and, and a lot of manpower and stuff that gets used up to create this. And sure, it creates jobs, but eventually that's just going to be consumed and used up and then eventually it's gone. Whereas if they were to instead take that money and put it into a factory, that's still creating jobs and, and making opportunities, but it's also then going to add value to the economy in other ways as well, and it's not going to be consumed. What's your thought on that? I suppose the, the trade-off there is that the factory is going to make the person richer, the private jet's going to make them poorer. So it's, you know, inequality is getting worse, but isn't that still a better outcome overall? Yeah. So I would distinguish between growth and, and distribution in exactly the way you did. So for the vast majority of countries in the world, most of the time, their economies are not short of demand. They don't really need any more spending. That's especially true right now. You really don't want somebody going out and spending more because it'll add to inflation and you'll just see the central banks raise rates more. And so largely demand is controlled by central banks. And if they're not seeing enough spending in the economy, they cut rates. If they're seeing too much, they raise rates. And so your proverbial billionaire, if they go out and buy the jets, that'll just lead to an offsetting thing by the central bank. Where they can make a difference for growth, um, as I think you correctly noted in your question, is if they're saving money, not spending it, but saving it, um, because that saving becomes um, available to deploy throughout the economy. Um, and economic growth is, over the medium and long run, a function of what your potential is. And what your potential is, is a function of how much capital you have. And so the more you save, the more you can invest, um, the richer your country will be. Now, there's the distributional issue, but you can effectively take care of the distributional issue. You can have higher taxes, uh, whether on inheritances or on capital income or regular income or something like that. So, you know, my advice would be have a more progressive tax system, make sure the benefits of extra growth are shared by everyone, but not try to get in the way, you know to the degree you can avoid it, not try to get in the way of that growth itself. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in what you said there where economies don't ever have, well, rarely have a lack of demand because it tends to be when things are going wrong, that's, that's the, the first thing that you hear about. Consumer confidence is down and we've got to get that back up. 
but um, and you said by and large that's normally not an, not an issue. Right. To be clear, in a recession, you want more demand, you want more spending. That's your way out of the recession. And so now and then that is the case. But most countries, most of the time, the right way to think about growth over the medium and long term is what can they do to expand the supply side of their economy? And you expand the supply side of your economy by saving more, investing more, and thus accumulating more capital. And I don't want to make a policy on the fly here, but um, do you think there's, there's some kind of policy that could be uh, made to encourage investment for people that are not there at the very you know, tippy top? You know, firstly, you know, that helps with uh, you know, building out supply, but it also perhaps makes people participants and, and beneficiaries of the success of their economy. Uh, is that something that you've ever you know, sort of thought about or, or seen implemented well in any other countries? Look, I think for the most part, policy should be focused on incomes. And if you can raise incomes over time, um, that will raise wealth. And, you know, there's a whole suite of policies from education to minimum wages to transfers to other things that can help with incomes. In terms of, you know, wealth itself, I think that there's a real interest in making sure people are making decisions well about accumulating wealth. A lot of people are very myopic, don't have much experience, get confused easily. So things like automatic enrollment in saving plans have turned out to be a powerful tool to increase savings. More things that make the fees um, more transparent. You know, index funds, you save in that, you get to keep most of your money, put it in a high fee mutual fund and you know, you lose 25% of your money over the next 25 years. So I think there's things that can sort of help families that want to save, save more. But for the most part, I prefer policies focused on income, not wealth. Yeah, that, that's fair. And um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for humoring us on the, the sort of uh, kind of left of field questions there. And I'm going to give you another, um, another difficult one. And I want to go back to the countries that are, that are sort of in a, a less fortunate position than you know, let's say Australia or, or the USA, you know, if you were suddenly the president and, uh, and the chairman of the central bank in a country like Sri Lanka, where for better or worse, unfortunately, you're in a position now where you have a lot of debt, but let's say it hasn't turned into a crisis just yet, but you've realized that things could get pretty bad pretty quickly. Do you think there's a productive way for, for countries that are sort of seeing themselves moving in that direction to pull back that debt without completely destroying their economy, considering that it normally involves you know, raising taxes and, and lowering spending, which is very much uh, puts a damper on, on growth, which is something that they sort of need. Do you think there's a constructive way to get out of that? Or do you think by that point, it's, it's already too late for them? It's tough. Um, because as you just said, you know, the most important way to repay debt is to have a higher growth rate and a lower interest rate. And so if you're taking steps that undermine your growth rate, it can help with one hand, but take away with the other hand. You know, the lower interest rate is you get a lower interest rate if people are less worried about lending to you. But if all of a sudden you make it clear that you're in a worse fiscal situation than people realize, that might make it harder to get those lower interest rates loans and, you know, restructuring debt as global interest rates are, are rising is a difficult thing um, to do too. So, you know, it's always the case that um, with these things that compound, 
the sooner you address them, the less costly it is. So as bad as everything I just said was in terms of the challenges it creates to handling your debt, waiting two years, all those challenges will be even bigger and harder. But you know, I don't think there's any easy time to start working on this question once you've gotten yourself into the bad part of the spiral. And then to, to expand that and to look at a, a country like the USA, which while they claim their debt is under control, there are still concerns around it. Just sort of last month, there was a problem with the debt ceiling, which is an issue that continues to be cause for concern, I suppose, for investors. It's um, for everyone looking on. I don't know if you see it while you're amongst it, but it's kind of everyone's a little bit uneasy about uh, your, your game of political chicken that you, you play every two years, it seems. Um, but long term, it just seems like the debt is only ever moving in one direction. Do you see a future where, especially for a country like the USA, where you have all of the advantages, you have the global reserve currency, uh, you know, a majority of your, your lending comes from the domestic market, but do you see it ever, ever becoming something that, that even with all those advantages becomes unsustainable? I think the United States will avoid that problem. Look, I, the debt ceiling, I think, is, is utterly idiotic. I've called for repealing it. I hope it does get repealed one day. But most investors understand that it's going to get raised, that even if it doesn't get raised, that they're themselves are probably going to get paid back. And so people are willing to, to lend to the United States at relatively low interest rates. Um, you saw some weirdness in interest rates around the debt ceiling date, but not more broadly. I do think the United States is going to have to make some adjustments over time. Um, when I look at our ratio of debt service adjusted for inflation to GDP, I'd like to keep that number below 2%. It's way below 2% right now, but it's rising. It might get there. It might rise above that. And so, you know, I, I think we have things like in our pension program for um, older people and for people with disabilities, there's some shortfalls there that will eventually have to be addressed. But I think it, I think it actually is closer to tweaks than it is to wholesale surgery. And the debt has been rising as a share of GDP. But if you look at debt service relative to the economy, that's still on the low side in historical context. It's always comforting to hear that from someone uh, that, that's been on the inside and sort of, uh, I suppose, been the one making uh, or at least suggesting the tweaks to be made. So, Jason, thank you for, uh, for coming on and uh, answering all of our questions. I hope uh, some of them uh, were, were uh, insightful for, for our audience, and I, I know they, they absolutely will be. It, it was fantastic to get this perspective from someone, obviously with the academic background and the real-world background. So I really can't thank you enough for, for shedding light on, on an issue that, that has a lot of people with a lot of things to say without much credibility, to be honest. <laughs> well, it was great being on, and, and I'm thrilled to learn the world has one uh, quadrillion dollars worth of wealth. Yeah, well, I'll send, I'll send you the report. It was quite interesting. It's one of those things that's, um, I, I suppose, one thing that we didn't really address. It. It's, it's so hard to uh, categorize. It was, their methodology was quite interesting, but you know, who's to say what a piece of art or a, a family heirloom or a, you know, or my bottle of water sitting here on my desk is worth. It's, um, adding up all of those things is, is obviously the hard part. But yeah, I think they did about as good a job as anyone else can, can do about it. And Hey, I, I was I was happy to uh, to take them at their word because I got to say one quadrillion dollars. <laughs> well, with it, with inflation, you know, maybe if it persists like this, maybe we'll all be saying that in a few years' time. But uh, 
No, we've got to say it first here. Um, anyway, so thanks again, mate. Thanks again. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.